presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 224, Bird Strikes, Hazards, and Avoidance, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Well, hey, folks, welcome to another episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast, the podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. I am joined this evening by two co-hosts, one in the Northeast right now. Actually, that's where I was this morning. A little bit cooler, a little bit, uh, I think it was kind of overcast up there, and that's Rick Felty. Hey, Rick, how you doing, man? Good, Carl. Happy to be here. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's fall, kind of rainy October week. We've been socked in a little bit here. Not heavy rain, just gloomy, you know. Offshore stuff. Yeah, good good day to have your instrument rating. That's go. for sure. Yeah. So it's good time to, good time to work on that. You know, it's interesting up in the Northeast there though. One of the problems you have is when you start flying IFR, uh, you know, kind of gets a little bit icing there too. So you have to right. be a little bit careful of that. Yeah. That's for, that's for sure. So, uh, but anyway, it's great to have you, Rick, and uh, we can't wait to talk about our topic this evening and and get some input. The other person joining us today is uh, Tom Frick. Hey, Tom, how you doing, buddy? Hi, Carl. Yeah, a little different weather here for us. It's uh, I just looked at it. It's uh, 8.30 at night as we record this, and it's 82 degrees and 78% humidity. Oh, wow. Oof. Wow. Yeah, big change. Uh, actually amazing, that, that's for sure. Hey, guys, you know, I, I just got back from vacation, and, uh, and this is the podcast after I came back from vacation. It, I went exploring a bunch of airports in the Northeast, uh, primarily in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, a little bit in New York. I had so much fun. It's uh, it's so cool to get out and explore different airports and explore uh, different schools and also different aircraft and aviation businesses. There's so many different things out there. I stopped by a place that did skydiving, uh, another place that did biplane rides, another one that did glider rides. I mean, it just... It was just so invigorating just to kind of go around and drive around and visit all these places. And uh, I did that also in, in Florida the other day. Went over to DeLand and to, uh, I went, stopped by Ember Riddle, stopped by uh, Daytona Beach. So just totally cool. Uh, you know what's a lot of fun? If you can't get out there and fly, just get out there and drive to some airports and hang out and, and watch some airplanes and stuff like that. Rick, is, have you done that lately? Have you hung out at the airport? Yeah, actually, for, for work. It's a funny thing. I was down... Um for a shoot at um, Plymouth, which I'd flown into a bunch of times, uh, it's a it's a nice big you know week he- heavy heavily traveled weekend landing spot, and uh, I was there doing a commercial shoot with the Goodyear Blimp. Cool. Yeah, so I was at Plymouth uh, just doing a shoot, and there's the you know hanging out with the Goodyear Blimp pilots and. Um, probably be good to get them on the show sometime. I sh- I'll have to work on that. Yeah. 
we definitely need to do that. I'd love to have you maybe run out there with a uh, recorder and, and talk to some of the folks here. We've had some of the uh, people on a long time ago talking about blimps, and we've had people with uh, balloons and stuff like that, but it's always a neat another perspective of aviation. It's always cool to get out there. That's cool. Um, speaking of aviation, Rick, you know, I was going to ask you this. Uh, last time you've been flying a small plane was when? I was just kind of curious because some people ask me uh, while yeah, ago, yeah, right? no, it's been a, it's been a few years, yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured, uh, still got the passion for it though. That's what's cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, life just got busy in other ways, and uh, um, f- mostly time to to some degree, money, but mostly time. Uh, not enough time to devote to it, given some of the other pursuits I have right now. But yeah, I definitely do, and I want to, you know, I I, I want to hold it open to get back to it for sure. And there's a reason I brought that up because I was hanging out with Jamie Beckett and Jamie, he's one of the ambassadors for AOPA and I was yeah. kind of relating you and, and other people in the same situation and, and we both kind of came to an agreement, as long as you're just out there kind of enjoying it, aviation, it doesn't matter what, what manner you enjoy it um, and eventually you're going to get back in the airplane and, and go fly. It's yeah. just the fact that you're having fun and that that's what's so important about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to read about to know about you know to see to see the changes i was reading the stories today that were flying around on social about uh the you know the advances in sort of self-landing technology and uh all that stuff the way all this is going is fascinating and so yeah you can pursue it even from the ground uh and uh, there's so much core stuff that you learn that uh you know getting your hands getting back into it with the help of a CFI is uh, is actually not that big a deal. And like I used to say, even if I was flying with the CFI, I get to go fly, you know? And so even the relearning of stuff will be fun, I think. And I just started relearning how to land a little airplane. It's been awesome. <laughs> uh, so we're all, yeah, I mean, think about it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of yeah. funny. But, you know, it's a whole different perspective. So we're always learning, no matter what level right. finding, we're at. That finding that flare, that flare that's much lower to the ground than you're used to. Much lower, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> much, much lower. Um, but, yeah, that's cool, though. I, I'm just so glad that you're you're still involved. And all the, all the other people listening are still involved with in aviation. Some haven't flown in a long time. And that doesn't matter. It's just that you love it. Um, um, but anyway, interestingly, uh, we're actually going to go out and do something that I think uh, Tom's a little more new to and he's very interested in. And, and I've been interested for many, many years, of course, been going to Sebring. Um, but this is uh, light sport aircraft. And DeLand actually has, you know, obviously since Sebring's, uh, you know, stopped, but it's become kind of the de facto larger uh, event for light sport aircraft or sport aviation. And it's called the DeLand Sport Aviation Showcase. And what's really cool, and we didn't want to say anything about this till we knew we were going to be there, but the stuff. Mike Avcast crew, we have, I think, three, and Tom, you can correct me if I'm wrong, maybe four people that are going there. It's going to be myself, Tom, Michael McClellan, but Michael's actually going to have a really important role. He's going to do a lot of the air show announcing that he normally does. And Tom, is there anybody else that's going to be there from Stuck Mike? I can't remember now. I can't remember either. That's okay. the three that I know for sure is uh, Mike, you, and I. Oh, and then a guest we had on, Roy Brewer. That's right. That's what I was thinking of. Roy Brewer is actually going to stop by too, so that's really cool. He does a lot of the editing uh, with Sun and Fun, so sometimes I get the two mixed up. So Sun and Fun is going to be streaming live. Sun and Fun Radio, I should say. Sun and Fun Radio is going to be doing some streaming 
streaming live, and it's all being directed by Dave Schalbetter, who's the chairman of Sun and Fun Radio, and uh, uh, Jana Philip, who's actually the person that puts together is the head, I think, of marketing of the, the Land Sport Aviation Showcase, uh, is just a you know a, the brains behind the organization. I always say, but and also the person that does a lot of the footwork and gets everything coordinated. This is all coming together, and it was really awesome last year to see some of the live events, and I think it was Facebook Live they did last year, kind of stepping up their game a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to give away everything, but I know they're going to make do something a little bit better this year. Interviews, I think they're going to have guests. I think from what he told me, the, there's going to be two days that uh, are totally booked. And the days that that's going to be, this comes out, I guess, on November 1st, uh, November 14th through the 16th this year. It's at Deland. Deland is not that far from, it's north of uh, Orlando, not far from Daytona Beach. It's right off of I-4. It was a place that I recently visited, and Deland, I did not know this. It used to be Deland Naval Air Station, and there's also this really cool museum there with an F-14 out there, and you can go check that out. And it's on, on the, uh, I think, the southwest side, but anyway, it's on the airfield. But this place is going to turn into the place to be for light sport aircraft. And I think, Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you've, uh, you've really started getting an interest in light sport. I have, and it's gotten more, and, uh, you know, credit Michael McClellan. I mean, as he has come onto the show and enlightened us with all the light sports stuff, um, you know, I've I've just gotten more of an interest in it. I know I've seen a lot of it when I've gone to the air shows over in Lakeland and up in Oshkosh, and, and, uh, you know, you poke your nose in these planes, and they're well-built and well-appointed and, you know, um, relatively inexpensive as far as, you know, um, airplanes go, and I was amazed, you know, to see that there was that kind of equipment out there. So, and then I realized just how much stuff was out there and how little I knew about it. So, yeah, getting getting an interest in it, and would love to know more and hope to learn more. And and remember, it's more than just light sport, uh, you know, power parachutes. There's all sorts of stuff out there. Seaplanes, there's gliders. Um, they're going to have like a little bit of an air show going on. All sorts of exhibitors. Some of our friends from. You know, obviously, Son of Fun Radio, but uh, quite a few other. Oh, Chart It All, of course, is another big exhibitor that's going to be out there. Uh, and just all the other folks, so Aerolite, uh, Aeropilot, and Aerotrek, all the arrows are out there, of course. And, uh, and then, you know, you have Sling, you have uh, all the different light sport aircraft. And I, I like to call them more of the affordable type of flying. And uh, I love to see some of those seaplanes that are out there, too. So I'm very, very excited for that. Again, that's going to be the 14th. And uh, that would be the, it's on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I think it is. And that we will be out there, I think Tom and I, the 14th through the 16th, Tom and I will be out there definitely Friday, Saturday. I'm not so so sure about Thursday, but definitely there's going to be some cool stuff to, to see out there. Great place to go out and take some rides in aircraft if you're interested in, in sport aviation. This is the place to go. They call it a showcase. It is more like a showcase. Uh, and it's really, uh, one of the things I love about it, it's a very approachable type of an event, a lot smaller than uh, some of the other ones that are out there. Uh, but it's it's one of those, you know, kind of you get that, you know, get out there and touch and feel the show. It's really, really cool. So make sure you go check that out. Also, before we get started with the show uh, uh, and on to our topic this evening, hey, uh, let's t- uh, go to our sponsor. So real quickly, let's go to that real quick. Do you want to pursue a career in aviation as a pilot, air traffic controller, mechanic, or dispatcher? Or do you just want to earn that commercial or instrument rating, but you need help paying for it? 
The Aerospace Scholarships Guide at AviationCareersPodcast.com has over $50 million in available scholarships. Many of these go unused because people don't apply for them. For just $10, you'll receive a full-year subscription to the guide, which is updated monthly. Every scholarship is personally verified to make sure it's accurate and still available. More information is at AviationCareersPodcast.com. And we're back. And don't forget on the the scholarships guide uh, that we have a new thing called the Pay It Forward campaign. And in the Pay It Forward campaign, you can actually, if you want to contribute to somebody maybe getting their ratings or maybe getting a scholarship to go to college, you can help out by actually purchasing one for somebody or a few. Uh, if you if you purchase five of those, you can actually, we will throw in one for free. And that's the that whole scholarships guide that I put together. People ask me you know, why I, I mentioned it on Stuck Mike Avcast because everybody thinks it's more academic, but it's not. I mean, there's stuff out there for people of all ages, and there's a lot of industry-specific scholarships out there for people that uh, want to move forward in their careers, but not just that, but move forward with their ratings. Uh, a great example is Victoria. Victoria finished up her CFI. Yay, congratulations, Victoria. I wish she was on tonight, but we we will have her on. As a matter of fact, we're going to interview her about getting her CFI, and, and maybe this is something you might want to consider doing, but she's one that actually was able to get a scholarship out of the scholarships guide. So I'm really, we're really proud of uh, Victoria. We're going to talk about, you know, how to be a successful CFI, how to actually go about attaining the CFI, and also some of the trials and tribulations and some of the challenges of uh, obtaining your CFI. Because believe me, you know if you when you hear Victoria's story, she has been through quite a few challenges getting her ratings, etc. Now entering cruise flight. You know, uh, Rick. The other day I was out uh, listening to my nephew. You know, I got that yep. uh, warrior now over there at the airport. Gosh, that's <laughs> so much fun to fly. And he was out doing touch and goes and everything. And nice. you won't believe what happened. He's just doing touch and goes. Well, what could possibly <laughs> what, could it, what could go wrong, right? Well, lots of things. But, you know, he's probably just a basic day. But something happened. What, what happened? And, and I'm glad you asked, Rick, because we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're sitting there. And, and all, you know, now imagine this. Here, I have this airplane. And he's out flying my airplane. Right. And it usually, every time something goes wrong, it always starts off very slowly. Uh-huh. It's like, hey, uh, Carl, I have something to uh, talk to you about. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, well, what happened? Well, you see, we were doing touch and goes. And I was like, oh, let me sit down. Hang on. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I sit down. And he's like, well, during one of the touch and goes, we touched down and I brought the power forward. And when I brought the power forward, it sounded like there was a backfire or something. I was like, Oh no! Okay, what happened? He says, "Well, we aborted the takeoff and we taxied off the runway." Okay, what else happened? Well, I went and I did a run up, and everything seemed fine. So we decided to go back out to the runway, do some touch and goes, and finish up. So um, we did call the tower and, and talk to them and tell them, you know, maybe there's a possibility we may have maybe hit something, a small something on the runway. You might want to go do a sweep of the runway. Guess what they found, Rick? You won't believe this. All right. Right. A, a dead gopher tortoise. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, gopher tortoise, they're pretty big and, yeah. uh, you know, beefy. Yeah. So here's this little piper going over and, uh, well, gosh, I don't want to describe it, but it, it, it hit a soft spot. Let's put it yeah. that way. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. and now the, the gopher tortoise was uh, done. And yeah. so now this is the, the other thing that I didn't realize is all of a sudden, because, you know, in the state of Florida, it's on, on a national list of, uh, you know, not a endangered, but in Florida, it's kind of moved up on the list uh-huh. of something of a possible endangerment. So 
now you have all these organizations that get involved. So there was people out there with trucks and people taking his license and wow. asking him for his pilot certificate. And it wow. Was, he was all nervous and everything. Yeah. And then someone brought it up to me and said to me, hey, you know, you should have him fill out a wildlife strike report. And I said, you know what? You're right. The FA wildlife strike, uh, there's, there's a, a report online. Mm -hmm. It's terrific. It helps us in determining, you know, what's happening out there with wildlife strikes. Mm. And uh, interestingly, there was no damage to the airplane. We checked it. We couldn't find anything wrong with it. So any, there's any, a possibility that it was already. Go, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Maybe maybe something had happened before and it was what remained on the runway, be, you know, prior. I'm not yeah. sure. But he felt something. Like, I mean, he. Could he tell. did. Yeah. 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 So we're thinking that we got lucky in that possibly the wheel rolled over that portion that yeah. uh, was not solid. Yes. And so that that way it, it didn't do any damage. I was very, you know, sad for yeah. the cover tortoise, of course, but uh, very happy, you know, that nothing, no damage happened to my airplane. Um, so not to be selfish or anything, but, uh, so, yeah. but there's this whole process. So what happened from all this is I started thinking about this. For years, I've been doing this thing, uh, a presentation with the FAA safety program. It's, you know, bird strikes, hazards, and avoidance. Mm. And I started doing that back in 2002, amazingly enough. And I've just been adding to it uh -huh. uh, for all these years. And it really has, we've come a long way. We sure have. Mm. And that's kind of kind of what I want to talk about. Now, Rick, have you ever had a wildlife strike either no. in a car or in an airplane? Uh, car, I was, um, I was riding in a car I was not driving and uh that uh basically had a glancing blow uh, with a deer in indiana right and that was wow yeah the car was drivable deer i don't well we never saw but the deer seemed to limp off but you know those are situations you know we weren't in the position to do anything and we had to make a phone call and the car was drivable and i think someone probably dealt with the deer but um th that was that was scary but no in a plane um not really. I mean, I, I flew out a lot at Norwood, um, Massachusetts, and uh, there were they, there's a lot of birds in the area. Um, mostly, uh, takeoff ro rolls would scare them, you know, away from the sound, and and it was all good. And so, no, there was never there was never I never had an incident. Although it was funny as a student pilot, you know, there is that thing like you guys see it all the time where you're like, oh, there's a bird right there, like just passing by, you know, and pretty qu quickly you learn to you know kind of not worry about that to the degree it's not going to be in your way and it's not too big you just keep moving forward you know it's not something i ever dwell was dwelling on but um but no never had a never had an in-air anything or 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 on the ground in a plane well and, and interestingly enough not that you know of so True. there are instances True. where people have wildlife strikes and they don't know yeah i can and i could imagine i could see how that would happen we have it happen all the time at the airlines. Uh, you know, you do your walk around at the end of the night, you put the plane away, and obviously it's so big you can't see everything, but uh, mechanics will come on in the morning and say, hey, you know, you hit a little bird on the way in. And there's so many times, even, you know, in a Cessna or whatever, you just, just a little bit of a, a you nip something, et cetera, that does happen. Uh, what we're, we're talking about tonight, though, some of the more uh, serious uh, instances of, of wildlife strikes. And interestingly, most of them happen uh, close to the ground, which makes sense uh, in birds and and like you said, a lot of them get scared away, but some some do not. Uh, that's fascinating because and another interesting thing is that I didn't realize this, but there's many reasons that birds are on the runway. 
And I was doing some training up in Connecticut, and the birds would drop the shells on the runway the, that they drew out of the ocean, drop them out there, kill them, and they'd, they'd eat them there. So, of course, the bird's sitting there eating, so he's distracted by eating uh, whatever it is they're eating. And then, of course, you have a wildlife strike. So they had one of the highest instances of wildlife strikes. And uh, I looked at the runway. You know, they have those brushes that get all the snow off the runway. And they actually used that to get rid of all the shells that the birds were dropping on the runway. Wow, that was it was that much of a thing. Wow. Exactly. So one of the things that I think is important, and this is something that, um, so there's two different worlds as far as wildlife strikes. There's the, the world that isn't quite as regulated, and that's kind of the general aviation world. And then there's the airline world. And one of the things that we see in the airline world is that, you know, of course they do a lot of reporting, but also when you do report a strike, you're pretty much done. You have to get a mechanic out there and to check it out. And they're getting really tough. They really want to, the AFA wants to know what kind of uh, wildlife strikes there are. There's what's called the Part 139 airports where you have the scheduled airlines or they're certified for Part 139 even if they don't have scheduled airlines. Amazingly enough, you look at places like here, Lakeland Airport, we're Part 139. We don't have scheduled airlines, but we are certified in that classification. So when uh, going back, to my nephews hitting the turtle, the reason that there were so many people out there is that they have uh, not just mitigation, but they also have reporting requirements because they are Part 139 or uh, airport that allows the actual scheduled service there. Absolutely fascinating. And I it made me go back to my presentation on the bird strikes, hazards, and avoidance. And one of the things that I think is really important for us as general aviation pilots is uh, there isn't much different between us and also the the larger aircraft. And one of the reasons and one of the trends over the years, and, and um, believe me, I could sit here and talk for hours and hours about this and all sorts of statistics. But in general, we're seeing wildlife strikes go up in both general aviation and in the airlines because of a couple things. Number one, you know, there's been some treaties that have uh, allowed us, uh, actually it was 1918 when they had some treaties where, you know, they were losing a lot of birds. And uh, to actually protect the birds, they went uh, through a treaty, actually through Great Britain, but through Canada, and said that, hey, listen, we're, we're going to try to actually increase the population of birds. They've done such a great job that uh, now we're starting to see a lot more bird strikes because of the population of birds have gone up so much. So we've got one positive, but that also causes somewhat of a negative to the us uh, operating aircraft. And these aircraft, you know, on the airline side, you would think, oh, gosh, like, you know, Rick, you were saying they kind of get scared away. Well, another interesting thing that's been happening is now we have more regulations as far as not just uh, fuel usage, but also noise. The noise uh, standards are actually getting tighter. So what's happening? The airplanes actually are now getting quieter. So now we're having more bird strikes because of the fact they don't hear them as much as they did before. So we're seeing that. Um, but uh, but around, and, and this is also something really fascinating, is that in general, bird strikes within the airport boundaries, especially on the Part 139 side, have come down. They've actually come down because of some of these mitigating uh, practices they have in the bird strike world as far as trying to stop some of these bird strikes. One of the reasons I got uh, really interested in bird strikes is I, I used to have at least one or two a year for like 10 years straight. I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing wrong? It just it was just such a challenge. Um, but one of the things that I, I didn't think was they, it really isn't that big of a deal 
from a financial standpoint because you just get a little dent. But that little dent can turn into something that is a big repair, as we know, on any airplane. But also it it goes into downtime for that that actual aircraft. Um, Airliners, you know, a lot of people think that a the uh, you know an airliner couldn't get taken down by by a bird. Now we know much better that than that since the miracle on the Hudson. But for many years before that happened, that was back in January of 2009. For many years, I had to talk about some of these instances back in the 60s where just little starlings took down an a uh, an aircraft up in your neck of the woods there, the uh, in Boston Harbor back in uh, 1960. And uh, that was uh, quite some time. It was a, a Lockheed Electra that actually came down back then. So just just uh, amazing how we, so we do have a problem with bird strikes, and uh, in and around airports. The one thing that that whole instance with the miracle on the Hudson does for us is it makes us realize that not only do we have an issue around airports, and we're doing a much better job of mitigating, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, what we can do as far as helping out and mitigate uh, our our wildlife strikes, both in our airplane and also at our airport, but we're finding that now we need to start looking outward. Now that we've kind of gotten that under control, we need to start moving outward away from the airport, like within 5, 10 miles, because that's actually what happened here with this instance of the Airbus that was uh, landed in the Hudson River there. So something that I think is quite quite interesting. And I think it's it's interesting, too, that we have, you know, we, we kind of go about solving a problem like, a decrease in bird population, and then we cause another, another problem. But we always go through this these cycles uh, with everything. But in aviation, you know, cycles where okay, we solve something and we create another problem. So, um, so it's really what we want to do is kind of you know live harmoniously with our our feathered friends. But you know, what can we do to kind of you know stop some of the actual instances of hitting our airplanes, that type of thing. Um, but now I know. Before we go into some of those things, I know that um, this is something that's affected many of us. And I know people are listening right now and, you know, what can I do? Well, get involved. There's so many different things we can get involved with in organizations. And there's birdstrike.org. That's uh, an organization I've, I've gotten a lot of information from. But statistically, we need to be very aware and of many things while we're taking off and landing. But one of the biggies is, is actually hitting uh, animals. Interestingly enough... If we look at these these wildlife strikes, of course they're going to be birds, and uh, mainly they are birds, but sometimes there are uh, other animals like bats and deer. Deer, actually, it, it, and this is just common logic. I don't really need to go out there and look at the stats, but the bigger the animal you hit, the more damage it does to your airplane, and that makes a lot of sense. But interestingly, reptiles, and that's under the classification of the turtles, only 0.3% of accidents are actually hitting reptiles. Uh, but anyway, before I go into all that, I do want to have some, uh, I know, Tom, you were actually relating this to me when we started talking about this, that in in many different instances, you've had uh, bird strikes, but I think there was one that just happened recently that um, I think caused a, a little bit of damage. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, and then we're going to go into actually avoidance and uh, and actually what you can do to mitigate it at your airport. Sure. And yeah, I had a, a bird strike while I was training in a, in a Cessna. Um, I've had a couple of near run-ins with coyotes, which we seem to have a lot of here in Florida, and they seem to like the runways. They like hanging out in the airports because it's 
um, sparsely populated and that's usually where the birds are hanging out, which is what they eat. So um, we come across those as much as well. But the worst bird strike I had was uh, flying. Um, I was uh, still in training um, in a uh, Learjet 55. Uh, we were doing a flight uh, through Florida. We left out of uh, PIE. We're headed to Fort Lauderdale, which the normal flight over that is, you know, south to Naples and then across the state. Um, we were descending out of, I don't know, 17,000 heading down into Fort Lauderdale over the Everglades and just watching the glades. I mean, it's beautiful out there. It's just, you know, grasslands as far as you can see. And, um, we're watching the vultures just kind of flying out over the, over the glades and they hover on the thermals and, you know, it's a pretty normal sight. We see them all the time. And one of them happened to do a nosedive down and landed right on the, well, it hit the spar in between the, the windshields, um, and just vaporized and, we hit it doing, I don't know, somewhere about 140 knots. And, um, it, it sounded like a gunshot going off in the cabin and, and it, uh, made quite a mess. You know, it just, like I said, it vaporized this bird. Uh, if you have never seen a, uh, Florida Turkey vulture, they're, they're quite a sizable bird. Um, and, um, it was nasty, you know, um, but we landed the plane, which, uh, you know, I was, uh, filling a, a second in command role the pilot landed the plane through a little triangle that he could still see through the windshield. And, um, you know, we didn't declare an emergency, although I think the tower may have taken it as an emergency. They basically gave us a phone number to call, which was the uh, bird strike hotline. Um, they asked two simple questions. Was anybody hurt? No. Was anything damaged? No. Okay. Have a nice day. And that was the end of that conversation. So, that's that's kind of like the the worst one that I've had. So with the with that strike though, did you you filled out some forms also online? Did, did you do that? No, sir. Okay. It was, okay. It, was, it was literally it was a phone call. Phone call. Okay, because there there's some really cool things you can do to report wildlife strikes online, and not just you can do them written. You can also call, obviously. But uh, there's many different ways to figure out also what kind of a air or what kind of bird hit your aircraft uh and that's uh, actually through the smithsonian institution and they will actually uh they can send you a kit and you can send the remains whatever is there back to them and they will actually figure out what kind of what kind of bird it was and it's really fascinating what they can do with this now so things have come a real long way if i mean you obviously said it was a turkey vulture and then they can actually just say oh yeah this definitely was a turkey vulture um this really is a problem and it's a problem because uh, of a safety issues. There's different outcomes. Like you, you had this where it hit your windshield, and uh, you know I've had one hit a windshield where it basically just covered the whole windshield on the left side, but on the right side it was it was clear. So the person in the right seat actually landed the aircraft. But but some of the things that happen is it can cause us to return to the airport. It can also cause us to have engine problems because a lot of times birds become ingested in the engine or they are affect the engine in some way where they stop the prop or we have to stop the prop because of um, some of the remains getting into the engine where we have to turn it off. Because another part of that is that there can be a cause for smoke and fire from some of the remains that are in there. So we do need to have, and this is a problem, it's in millions of dollars, 
are are spent on fixing aircraft and then there's also the fact that you know there is there is some loss of life involved not a lot i mean there's some uh but in general we want to be able to obviously work in a safe environment but also make sure that we don't damage our aircraft so there's some things that we can do as pilots to change things and and let's talk a little bit about that what we can do to mitigate some of the different things as far as bird strikes are concerned and there's really a couple different categories that we can look at as far as mitigating bird strikes and and one of the big ones is making the environment that they're in unattractive for birds and uh, that's really, and that can be done in many different ways. We can also scare birds, and we can also reduce the bird population. Uh, the w- third one, of course, is the one that most people aren't really, you know, prone to doing. But reducing the bird population a lot of times is a physical reduction, um, and you'll see that happen in a lot of airports. Um, and they they do resort to certain times going out there and harvesting some of the birds out there. But making the the environment unattractive to birds is something I think is really important, uh, and because we got to remember that most of the bird strikes are ninety percent of them take place on or around airports, and usually during takeoff and landing. These are some very important times during flight. So we, if we can just go out there and get more involved as pilots, and this is something I'd like to challenge you all uh, to do, is get out there and talk to your airport and ask them, you know, what type of wildlife management or mitigation plans do you have at your airport? They may not have any. There's so many more resources out there and there's so many new uh, and existing organizations out there that will help you in designing a plan for your airport. And it's it's incredibly important because you're really that's where we get most of those uh, different areas uh, in the airport are just you know around the airport, and uh, we need to ensure that we have people trained and also equipped in the wildlife control, even at a small airport. That's something that we, you know, remember. There's always somebody that's operating that airport. It's, uh, it's some it's privately owned. Um, you can maybe ask the owner. You know, maybe we should move that dump away from that. But one of the things we really need to do is look at you know a, basically a zero tolerance for any large or small uh, animals on the airport. Some of those animals actually are animals that we bring with us. And what does that mean? That's like the pets. I mean, people have gopher tortoises as pets. Interestingly enough, um, after this gopher tortoise incident, I was out in the woods walking, and just when, just a couple days later, the first time I saw a gopher tortoise in years, and a lot of times you can see where they, they burrow into the ground. They're, they're very large. You can learn a lot about this online, but all, just through all these different organizations that are out there. We usually say bird strikes. They're really wildlife strikes, but the reason we say bird strikes so much is most of them are, you know, are birds that hit our aircraft, obviously. Um, Oh, the other thing that's kind of interesting too is, and this makes sense, is that most of our mammals, the strikes are when they're in takeoff, that we're not off there at become uh, apparent at zero feet above the ground. But there are some that have happened above the ground. And I was kind of thinking about that. And I, I kind of dug into that. It's like, how do you have a mammal strike above the ground? Well, you think about this when you're taking off or landing, you know, if you're just a couple feet in the air, that animal could be a couple feet tall, and that's actually where it happens. You can actually hit the you know, the wheels and also possibly the propeller uh, with that aircraft. Something that, that can get really expensive is hitting it with your propeller, and that's kind of what I was worried about with our airplane. But going back to the reduction efforts at your airport, there are certain things we can do 
without even having a management policy. And one of the things that we can do in conjunction with a management policy, for instance, covering all your trash and garbage receptacles, um, also ensure that there's, you know, judicious use of wildlife-threatening devices possibly at the airport. You know, try to look at those things. Also, what you want to do is support certain zoning, and that's near airports, to reduce the attractants to wildlife. This uh, When I got started in doing this presentation back in 2003, I was asked to do this in front of a group that was uh, developing a place to, uh, it was a dump just for uh, solid waste, or not solid, but the um, waste that comes from construction sites. And when you think about it, you're like, well, gosh, it's just wood and it's cinder blocks and things like that. And you're like, gosh, well, yeah, who cares? Well, something that I didn't realize is there's all this other byproduct of that waste. People on a construction site don't always necessarily throw all their garbage into garbage and all the construction materials into the certain dumpster that goes to this dump. So, for instance, someone might go out and eat something and throw their food into the dumpster, which is just for the construction materials, that gets placed at the end of the runway. And that's what they were planning on doing in, in the Austin area is putting this little dump at the end of the runway just for construction materials. And they actually were able to convince me that, yeah, this wasn't a great idea because you had other waste products that were within that. And also, by placing that there... It also it attracts wildlife, not just because of what's in the trash, but because of the trash. That becomes like their habitat. And I was like, gosh, you know, as I'm thinking about it, yeah, that's right. That really makes a lot of sense. So you really need to support the zoning in the areas around your airports really to reduce the, the attractants to, to wildlife. And some things we don't think may attract wildlife, they do. And you learn these things. Uh, a lot of people go out camping and stuff like that. You know, you, you place your trash in a bag or your food in a bag. We call them bear bags. And you, you kind of put them up in the tree so the bears don't get to them. There's all sorts of things that we can do. Also, another thing that I would really, you know, I would hope you try to do is try to promote reporting of birds and other wildlife strikes. Um, and to do that, there's this really cool, and it's gotten better over the years, it's this thing you can print off or you can order it's a big poster you can put at your airport, and there's all the smaller ones, and just kind of hang them up around the airport to really get people to start reporting these. Because what ha what's been happening is this, and this is really cool. The, the general aviation airports, their reporting has gone up dramatically over the past 10 years. And it's because of these efforts, because of these different efforts and organizations that are out there that are telling people this is what you need to do. And one of my favorite ones is the Bird Strike Committee USA. And it's uh, and I really highly recommend going out there. If you're into bird strikes as much as I am, go to birdstrike.org. And they have their website has come a long way, mainly for it's, it's the members are usually within the industry. They do have some consultants in there, too. But they have some very interesting articles out there, some really cool pictures and stuff like that. But this was formed back in 91. <clears throat> and it's been around a while. It was just getting off the ground right when I was starting to do, you know, and really becoming more popular when I started doing this presentation on bird strikes, hazards, and avoidance, which, by the way, I'm probably going to wind up turning into a video because we're, we're not, we can no way go over everything that we're, that's in this video, just kind of an overview of bird strikes. But um, one of the things that I love about um, solutions to the bird strike problem, and I think Rick would kind of like this and, and Tom would, because I know, Rick, you're really into in dogs and stuff, is 
Yeah. One of the things is the border collies, and I don't know if you know much about those, yes. Rick. You know the border collies. They're, they're kind of herding dogs, right? Yeah, yeah, and they <laughs> actually have come a long way. Um, there was actually a McDill Air Force Base, which is near me. They were using border collies to chase animals away, and interestingly, the border collies—they're really smart animals, and they can train them to try to be like a predator, act like a predator animal, and go after some of the other animals they're trying to get away from the airport. And I was like fascinated by that. And I, I, I want to get a border collie now. I don't have a dog now, but I'd love to get one of those. But they they can actually deter some of these species of birds that are actually protected by harassing them. So here's it's a cool thing. I mean, you're not you know destroying the animal, uh, the bird, I should say, and it's getting rid of them. And that's a, and it's also detracting them from coming back to the airport because then they start, you know, saying, "Hey, we're not going to go there because the fact that they have these border collies out there that are harassing us." You know, they've been using those at golf courses and stuff like that. And one of the things, though, like anything, uh, over time, it can actually, you know, decrease the the effectiveness of having the border collies because they can get used to it. Just like uh, decoys. I mean, you've seen those in our hangars. You know, you have the owls and stuff like that, and then you see some birds sitting on top of the owl, and you realize, yeah, that's not working anymore. So there's <laughs> <laughs> there's there's times when we realize that, you know, we have to change our tactics because they do get used to it. But I really, I highly recommend checking out the Border Collie Rescues because those that website, Border Collie Rescue, has a lot of information about uh, the animals and what they can do to help us um, you know, go out and, and mitigate the threats to the, to the bird strikes at the airports. Another thing that, uh, and the reason I, I talk about that is because we assume sometimes that we can't actually kill birds um, just to protect aircraft, and that's not true. Um, so there's many birds that, that are not federally protected, and they are generally, uh, you know, killed to, to get rid of them. So just remember... The endangered species, of course, they can't be killed under any circumstances, but there's so many other birds that are out there that are not indigenous that can, they can just get rid of. So that's what, another reason we want to kind of promote some of this. So we really want to try to get a mitigation uh, system, kind of like the border collies. You know? And I, I, just, I think it's a wonderful win-win because you're saving a border collie, and it's a border collie rescue, and you're uh, actually preventing wildlife strikes at an airport. So what better way uh, than to do both of those at the same time? I think too. <clears throat> I know there's there's so many people out there that are probably thinking, you know, what is you know the the biggest killer of these these birds, and we're finding on the migratory bird side of things that one of the largest you know sometimes I think it's birds because it's bird strikes with aircraft, and I did some research into this, and it really isn't. Um, now the largest killer is glass windows uh, of uh, migratory birds, and I was like, I, I had again look into that, and it just makes sense as we've gotten bigger, and these cities got cities have gotten bigger. You're seeing more and more of the birds uh, flying into those windows, uh, and yeah, there are some obviously with the uh, the windmills and stuff like that. That's kind of hasn't gotten that big yet because there's not as many windmills out there. But I'm I'm assuming that's going to actually grow also over years, and I've I've seen some of those stats, and they're kind of growing too. So uh, that that's also quite interesting. So we have all these. All these different birds, we have different migratory birds, and we have issues 
everywhere in the country. But what we want to do is try as hard as we can to, to try to mitigate those things. When we've, we've done things ourselves. I don't know, um, you know, Tom, if you've ever seen this where people will put different strings in their backyard to stop the birds from coming in. So, you know, that, you know, how you put the monofilament line over your, over your pool. Well, gosh, you know, the only downside to that is, um, you know, I was thinking this would be a great way to mitigate birds at the airport. Well, gosh, we'd be running into those all the time. And, and you know, that they put them in different areas around the airports and realize that this isn't going to be good because of the fact that it actually impinges on the, the safe zone uh, and within that airport. So that, that doesn't work so much uh, for what we're trying to do. But, uh, but Tom, going back to your instance, um, and now we've kind of talked a little bit about some of the wildlife mitigation. And, and again, this is a cursory discussion, but I've hit some of the main points as to what we can do to mitigate wildlife strikes. What, Tom, in going back to your instance, what was the most important thing that you feel um, during that wildlife strike that you could do to keep that aircraft safe? Well, it was just at that point – you know, we were we were basically on an approach. So I mean, it was just to keep the plane flying. We 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 went through a set of checks immediately. You know, just and everything was still working. You know, it was, you know, let's make sure everything we're still flying. I mean, we it happened so fast, and then you had to kind of let it sink in for a second, like what just happened, and then you know, go through the motions afterwards to make sure that uh you know the flight was still safe, and it was. You know, so at that point, it was just okay. This is what we have. Let's get the plane on the ground safely, which we did. And and then afterwards, you know, I mean, the the habits of of that particular bird, that vulture. I mean, we see them flying over Florida all the time. You know, they're at lower altitudes, and they have a tendency to dive when they see something coming at them. You know, um, this particular bird dove right into us. Instead of, he could have just stayed up at altitude and stayed above us and he'd have missed us, but he decided to come right down into us. And it's a, it's a natural instinct for them to do that. They, they feel threatened, they dive. So, you know, mitigating something like that would be, you know, just being aware of what's out there and, and trying to, to stay out of their way. You know, although at the speed we were flying, it's sometimes harder to do. But the one thing that you said first, and it's kind of the key point on that, is that you flew the aircraft. You, you always have to fly the aircraft, and that's really important. And I think sometimes we forget that. Yep. No, that's when I guess when we're flying, that's paramount is make sure you fly the airplane first, and then everything else kind of falls in afterwards. So one of the reasons I bring this up, Tom, is that there's many accident reports, and we can go out there and look at them, in which the pilot was attempting to avoid a bird and lost control of the aircraft and even flew it right into the ground while trying to avoid that aircraft. So even though you're trying to steer away from the birds, you still need to, you know, remain in control of that. You know, if you if you pitch up to avoid a flock, you know, obviously don't pitch way up so that you stall the aircraft. And, uh, you know, if you're flying in an area of, of birds, then a couple of things you can do is, you know, put your lights on. Um, you know, we're approaching an airport. We try to put our lights on. Usually it's to make other people see us, but we also want the birds to see us too. And there's uh, another thing too that's been 
and this goes back and forth, and I've seen this happen over the years, is the type of lights that we have on, the different colors. There have been so many experiments over the years as far as what we can do to actually make the bird aware of our presence. So you see, like even Southwest Airlines, you see them having the flashing lights, and a lot of people do the strobe lights, that kind of thing. So there's there's a lot of, there's some evidence that, yes, that does help, uh, but there's an evidence too that doing many different things makes it much safer. So um, the other thing I, I think we forget about is what we're going to do. So like any pilot, we should always be ready for anything. So what would you do if you had a bird strike? And like you said, sometimes it happens so fast. I mean, I had a bird strike at night. The majority are obviously during the day, but I had one at night coming into Fort Myers, and I think I was at 5,000 feet when it hit me. I was like, wow, this is pretty darn high. And it's like, now what do we do? You know, I'm over an area that's dark. I mean, I'm going to continue on to the airport. The engine's still going. We're good. Uh, so, you know, always be ready for that bird strike, even though uh, you're not thinking about it. You, it's just like anything else. So you have to be prepared. But have it in the back of your mind. While you're sitting there and just twiddling your thumbs looking at the sun or the moon at night, maybe you should start thinking about that. What would you do if a bird came along? Um, and be prepared. You know, being prepared for a bird strike is really important. I know we do that when we're taking off and landing. There's always hazards like in and on the notums and talking about bird strikes, et cetera, and birds in the vicinity. You know, would you go around? Would you abort the takeoff? You know, if you're in route, can you make it to another airport? Say you get you hit a bird. Uh, I hit two birds once, and one hit the vertical stabilizer, the other one hit the horizontal stabilizer, and I could still control the plane, but I could feel the difference. So I was like, well, you know, we can continue on to where we're going, but we know it's going to be grounded when we get there. So it's really that's something else to think about. The other thing, too, that uh, uh, those that fly in the northeast or I should say in the colder climates, not in the northeast, but in the colder climates is look at your windshield. You know, it's better to have a more pliable windshield. So maybe get the heat on the windshield. Uh, there's some that have the heaters built in you've seen and all, but, you know, defrost on that kind of thing. And that actually kind of helps out uh, with making it a little bit more pliable and the chances of shattering are a little bit more diminished. The other thing, too, and this is uh, something that can be a little extreme, but, you know, if you're in, in that environment, if you're somebody who's flying really low to the ground all the time, say you're doing aerial observation, consider shatterproof glasses or goggles. Uh, and wear them during takeoffs and landings if you're doing it in an area that has lots of bird strikes. I know it would be kind of funny looking, but uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start getting those big World War II goggles when I'm landing. Uh, I wonder I wonder what they'd say at work. But the uh, but some of those, I mean, that, that may seem extreme to you, but if you are in one of those areas, yeah, you might want to think about that. Um, recently, a helicopter, talk about recent incidents where a helicopter flying over Florida had a bird come right in, and it, it slightly injured the pilot, but he was able to land, and it it was like, wow, boom. If he had some goggles on, he probably wouldn't have been injured as much as he was. Um, also, the other thing, too, like Tom said there, he flew the airplane. If you do have that strike, keep control of the aircraft, you know. Um, also, keep in mind if there's any loss of power, you know, there's 
even damage to the airfoil itself. Remember that that could actually cause the stall speed to go up on your aircraft. So think along those lines. Start really thinking outside the box as to what could happen. I mean, we saw this happen with the Southwest flight that had many pieces of the engine fly off and hit the wings. And there's a, a recent flight, and that could have been a bird that, that could cause that too. In this case, it was an engine. So it changed some of the aerodynamics of the actual wing itself. So really, you know, make sure that you have kind of a plan in mind. That's kind of what we're doing here. We're trying to make you think a little bit more as far as what to do in case something does happen. And make sure you do go out there if you do have a strike and fill out that FAA form. It's 5200-7, I think is what it is. It's uh, the bird and wildlife strike. The easiest way to find it is on the FAA. Uh, wild strife strike uh, database form it's uh, there's a there's simple buttons that say you can search you can report or you can even edit a strike report like say you didn't put something in there that you should have and you just go to wildlife.fa.gov we're going to have those links in the show notes so that uh, you can check those out also the other thing i would love to hear about is your experience if if you want us to write a story you know write in a story or we can talk to you about it as far as your experience with bird strikes you know have you ever been involved in one uh what did you do what did you do to try to avoid those uh, do you think that whatever this bird strike was that you have, do you think it was avoidable? Um, and do you think that maybe somebody else could learn from that experience? We'd love to hear about you and, and about that. And you can just write us at uh, contact at stuckmikeavcast.com or uh, go to stuckmikeavcast at gmail. Dot com. Really good stuff out there. There's uh, And we haven't even gone into some of these other websites out there, but from birdstrike.org, birdstrike.org, there's so many different ways that you can find these. Uh, there's the, you know, the different uh, websites where you can actually see where the migratory birds are and they have different uh, densities and there's different ways that you can actually, there's a thing called the bird avoidance model that the US Air Force has and you can search that database. All that stuff is linkable off that website. You can see where like the turkey vultures are, like in the summer, you know, where those the turkey vultures congregate, in the winter where they congregate. Obviously South Florida is really big with the turkey vultures in the, uh, in the winter, so you're going to see a lot more of those in that area, and they're pretty big, as as Tom can attest to. So, a lot of good stuff that we've gone over here. Uh, there's also some really good information on uh, the FAA.gov uh, airports websites about wildlife. Really neat stuff there. But uh, but one of the things I do want to do before we kind of close out this discussion is I'm I'm hoping that again we've we brought to the your mind some things to think about as far as mitigating wildlife strikes at your airport, mitigating them in flight so that you may not have one using the lights, et cetera. What, you know, have you planned in your mind what you might do, what you should do after you do have a, a wildlife strike, whether it's a bird or any other type of animal. I think that's, that's really cool. But also I kind of want to leave with something a little bit fun here. You know, we think about wildlife strikes and, um, you know, aircraft and gosh, you know how long it's been since, We've actually had a bird, bird strike and bird strike reporting, but there is actually the first bird strike report. And Rick, do you know when what year that was? The first uh, bird strike report reported. I'll let Rick try. No, but I, I don't. I, but I, I saw that I saw this in the show notes, and I thought, did we skip that? I want to know. I want to know. So, <laughs> I so figured I'd leave it to. Well, gosh, you know, I'm thinking that it was that like the Wright brother. The Wright brothers it, had it, right? And so, Tom, do you know the answer to this one? I think Tom knows the answer, actually. What, was he right? Was it the Wright brothers? If somebody wants to go look it up, I'll pause. You can shut off the podcast. 
Oh God! <laughs> Drum roll, please. <laughs> Drum roll, please. Yeah. So it was. It was over a cornfield in Ohio in 1905 by Orville Wright. Wow. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. So so a bird strike, the first bird strike in 1905 by Orville Wright. Right. So from day one, essentially. (laughs) Essentially, yes. I mean. (laughs) Wow. Since we've we've taken flight, we've we've actually invaded their territory, so we've been seeing a lot of this happen. Well, so that was even before the birth of commercial aviation, which didn't happen until 1915, right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it was that early. Anyway, good discussion, guys. Uh, I don't know if there was anything else, you know, to add that you, you might have, uh, Tom or Rick, as far as as wildlife strikes. Um, again, I'm gonna try to get that video done. Uh, Rick and I are gonna kind of work on that next. I do have to update that that webinar has been a couple of years since I've updated it. I've been doing it over and over. Not a lot of things have changed, but a lot has changed. It's kind of weird, you know. We we do more research, and sometimes we find out through the research that what we're doing is the right thing. Um, and every so often, there's some more nuances, and there's things that we do learn from wildlife strikes. Uh, but if you're into this stuff like I am and the whole bird strike thing, it's it's actually really, really fascinating. Um, people actually ask me why I'm so into it. Um, one of the reasons is that, you know, I've hit so many birds myself, but also I grew up, you know, riding my bike to a place called the Raptor Trust, and it's kind of known throughout the country. It's in the Great Swamp in New Jersey, and they actually help uh, birds, raptors, uh, and bring them back to the point where they can actually fly and go back into the wild after they've had been struck either by uh, airplanes or by cars or have been damaged uh, through hunting accidents, things like that, or people, you know, trying to hunt them and, and stuff like that. So it's really cool. It's called the Raptor Trust. I'll actually put that in the show notes. So that's one, another reason I kind of got in, involved with this I, is sitting there and saying to myself, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. We're sharing the air with them. And, uh, and I wonder how much of this has really, you know, over the years, how much uh, has not gone reported. And we're finding more and more people are reporting them, especially general aviation airports. And I'm hoping you'll do that. And by the way, uh, one thing, too, I'd like to mention is that uh, hats off to there are awards, by the way, for the organiz- different airports that actually report wildlife strikes. And, uh, and then implement mitigation strategies. And hats off to Fort Myers for winning the award in 2018 uh, for their efforts in both reporting and uh, also mitigating uh, wildlife strikes. And then there's, you know, the Part 139 airports, the scheduled airlines. But hats off to, the, to those folks for being a general aviation aircraft uh, airport. And by the way, uh, I looked at the stats because I, I was kind of curious about uh, Lakeland. We have very few. Uh, wildlife strikes reported. We're like way low, low on the list. I think there's only like uh, 61 last year or something like that. So it's very low. And uh, so my, my nephew got to be part of that, unfortunately. But uh, <laughs> anyway, the, so any other comments, guys, from before we move on to our picks of the week? No, um, that's, I think we did a great job. It's it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is. And I, I tell you, I could sit here and talk for hours about it. I've, like I said, I've only gone over uh, some of the key points within that presentation. Um, I'm going to go ahead and promise that I'm going to get this video out for you. Uh, I just got to change a couple of slides on it and get it recorded. And uh, and Rick and I are going to work on that here to, to get it out to you because there's some really good information in there. Basically what we talked about, but we go into a lot more detail on the different things and where you can go and, and have the actual websites up 
there. And we might even put like a quiz at the end just so that you can uh, you maybe get credit for it. That's the other thing we're working on is having some of these videos so you can get credit on the uh, FAA website for, uh, you know, the safety program, the FAST team program, uh, FAAsafety.gov. Really cool stuff, and they have really neat courses out there, and we're hoping this is going to be part of that. Our Picks of the Week. Let's move on to our Picks of the Week. And uh, because Russ couldn't be here today, I figured I'd fill in for him on the whole, you know, reading. And he's always promoting a book. And this book, I, I've, I've read a book once or twice. Um, my, my problem is I read 10 at a time. I should just, like, stick with just one. And because on all my little devices, I have a book. And then I have a, in my... I, this is going to sound like such a geek, but I keep like books in my car behind the seat. So like if I'm waiting for somebody, I pull it out or a magazine. I always have something I can read within arm's length. And uh, I know I just love, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I love to learn things, not just about aviation. I mean, just some really, really cool things out there to read. But one of the things that really, um, it, it's really cool when you go out and I'm a big uh, antique and old book uh, explorer and I also love to collect different antiques. Another thing I like to collect is collect is aviation antiques and and stamps and first day covers. Well, I went to this one antique shop and they had uh, the 50th anniversary of Lindbergh's flight. So I bought some of those first day covers, which was really cool. But then I looked to the right and I saw all these really neat old aviation books. And so I started picking some of them off the shelf. And actually, the person that was the the vendor, because in an antique shop, there's many different vendors, he was there. And I, I said, I'm in aviation. He's in aviation, but in a different manner. He likes to read about it. He said, you know, there's this really, really cool book that I tell everybody that they should actually read. And it, it's about this lady who actually uh, flew across a large body of water and uh, I said wait a minute you're talking about west with the night he says yeah that's it he says I tell anybody to read that book because or everybody to read that book because it's such a wonderfully written book about Beryl Markham's uh, west with the night it's it's I think it's a classic it really is and it should be just like uh, any of the other books out there like Ernest Hemingway and, and stuff like that but it's a it's really a memoir uh, about Beryl Markham and and how she she was actually uh, able to fly by herself over a a large body of water I'm not telling you what it is because I want you to go out there and check it out um, but I will have a link to it in the in Amazon this book came out a long time ago it's had many many people have actually read this and it's not it's not so much the technical side of it that's really the most important part of the story it's just like in everything in aviation it's this person's struggle to be able to fly and be you know one of the first females to fly over this body of water and over uh, different areas um, within you know like Africa and stuff like that a time when not many women were in aviation, and it was very odd at times to see somebody actually flying an airplane uh, that was a female. Uh, you know, that's obviously changed, uh, and, and it's changing more and more. But it's really cool to hear her story and to see it through her eyes through a time frame and a time period where not too many uh, female flyers were out there. So I'd Beryl Markham, Wes with the Night, that's my pick of the week. So, Rick, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, this is kind of um, 
well, this is a geeky thing that I thought was pretty cool that I didn't know existed in this form. Um, and it is basically, um, it's, so it's got a probably a limited audience, but if this fits you, you might want to try this out. It's an aviation altimeter for the Apple Watch. And because the watch has uh, a barometer, I guess, in it or, um, of some sort, um, it's not a GPS-based thing. It's actually based on the barometric pressure. And um, so you 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 need an Apple Watch um, Series 3, 4, or 5. Um, and you the way that always works is in most... This has been around a little while, so you have to download an app on the phone, and then it then it loads onto your watch. But it works independent of your phone once it's once it's loaded on, and you get the ATIS and you put in the put in the uh, pressure, and it will track. From what the people online have said, um, you know, it was a couple of people said it was tracking within fifty feet of what their plane was showing them as they as they were flying. And uh, so there's you know you look at your watch, and there's an altimeter on your watch. It's it's pretty cool. Um, I I can't believe I I don't know that I would ever think of a reason why i would need that but i love that it's possible so uh, we'll have a link in the in the notes but it's uh, aviation altimeter for the apple watch and there's a more robust um piece of software that is not for the phone that's a little more involved that's not for the watch but it is for the phone um but this this is one that just sits right there on the on your wrist and uh, i thought that was pretty cool I think it'd be cool just so people could see the altimeter on there. I just leave it on there and say, you know, kind of a talking yeah. piece. Yeah, I think that's look, pretty oh, cool. Gee, it's, uh, we're, at, <laughs> we're at 150 feet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're, we, that's where we were yeah, we're at the same restaurant feet. yesterday. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's one of those, like I said, it's a bit geeky, but I, I was impressed that this exists. And that's the kind of thing that's out there now. It's amazing. Yeah, that is pretty cool. So you can't you can all, you have to use the uh, the watch three and above. Yeah, three and above, which is three and above. these days is becoming more that that's pretty much what people have because those first couple didn't you know the batteries they're, they're certainly getting old by now i have a, i have a earlier one that I, i'm keeping alive but i don't use very much yeah i keep mine alive i have to charge it like twice a day but yeah, uh, yeah. so so this means i have well, we'll to get a new watch that. you do and i yeah we should talk about that because there's a lot of nice features but that's that's another show Yes, we def- <laughs> definitely do that. Yeah, to do a whole show on Apple Watch and what yeah. you can do in aviation. I don't know. It would be yeah. kind of a sh- – yeah, maybe it would work. We'll see. <laughs> it's a little narrow. It's a little bit of a narrow audience because I know, you know a lot of people don't have them, but no. that's fine. That's all right. There are some cool watches, though, out there. Uh, yeah. Aviation oh, yeah, just sure. really cool, very expensive oh, yeah, watches. Yeah, yeah. They're just totally awesome. Oh, I'm a big fan of all those, uh, the, the, <laughs> the real – you know, as many dials as possible is, is, yeah, yeah. is what I would do. So, anyway. Yeah, I put them on both, but can't do that because yeah. they look really geeky. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, now that we've really geeked out, let's go and geek out some more with Tom. What is your pick of the week? Well, you might regret asking me that one this time. So my pick of the week, as it turns out, I'm going to go on a little vacation here soon. And I have, uh, I'll be leaving out of, uh, the East coast of Florida and specifically I'll be in the area to go to the Kennedy space center. Now I've been going to the space center since, well, before the shuttle program. So since I was a little kid, I've been back and forth and been there many times. And it's, it's definitely played a part in how I got into aviation in the first place. Just, you know, constantly looking up at the sky and being just enamored with, with space flight and, and, uh, you know, that whole thing. So the, my pick of the week is the Kennedy space center. Cause I was looking through their visitor center and their whole entire website and all the cool things there is to do over there. But then I got to digging around and digging around and it reminded me that from aviation standpoint. So here's my challenge, Carl is that you and I take that, 
plane that you now have and we go fly the shuttle landing facility. So that's something that you can do where you can actually go over there, call the tower and get vectored in and, and you can actually, you can't land, but you can fly an approach and fly the length of the, uh, the runway, the 15,000 foot runway over at the shuttle landing facility and then depart and they'll give you vectors in and vectors out. Uh, past Patrick Air Force Base, the shuttle landing facility, and that whole area over there. So I'm going to be over there on the ground um, the beginning of December, but at some point, I think you and I should go for a flight. I think, so those are, know, those are my picks of the week. I think that's an awesome pick, and I think that's an awesome idea. You know what we need to do is grab a, a camera and go out there and videotape it and uh, put it up on our YouTube channel. Yes, and, we uh, should. I, and yes. and I, I would think it is an opportunity for that. So that's... Uh, yeah, I went a little deeper than just a pick of the week. Uh, put my little thinking cap on, and I think I hurt myself. <laughs> but you know, it, it's a great idea, and I think we're gonna go have to go out there and and but but check it out first of all. Check out your pick of the week. I think that's awesome. But also, I think you and I need to go out there and and go fly over it. But uh, the other thing too, and I know it's a day late, and uh, this is the first. But one other pick of the week, and I forgot that I was supposed to do this one, but I'm going to add one more. And it's really cool. Air and Space Magazine has, uh, they had an article a while ago, and I think uh, it came out in October, obviously. And I love to refer back to it, and it's uh, the Haunted Airfields. And uh, one of the airfields is Denver International Airport that's haunted. I don't know if you've ever flown in there. This is just one of them. And I think you should check this out. I'll put the link to the article there. But it talks all about all the different fields that have been are considered haunted. And I don't know if you know the story behind the, uh, I guess it's a stallion or Bronco. Bronco. And the big red eyes in that statue and what's significant about it. I know there's people itching right now to, to tell me about it. But, yes, it's, uh, it, it is supposedly haunted. So go check that out. Places like the Everglades and Heathrow are in there. And uh, the uh, actual certain uh, museums like the Hornet and stuff like that are in there. So there's going to be a link to it. Airspace, uh, Air and Space Magazine has a really cool article about haunted airfields so very scary uh, and um, by the way i scare very easily so i probably won't be going back to some of those airfields i know when we the lady was describing the person that was driving me in the van late at night from the airport at denver is describing this to me about this bronco that fell on this or well, I'm, not, I'm giving it away but anyway the thing that happened and caused it to be haunted and i was kind of getting scared and of course right as she's telling me this i'm looking up at the Bronco with its red eyes staring right at me, and I couldn't sleep with the shades closed that night. Had to have a light on, but this gives it away that I'm a little bit afraid of, of scary stories. Wow! <laughs> so <laughs> the uh, not to do anything scare me, but those type of things, and that's uh, it, and there are haunted airplanes out there, haunted airfields. Uh, there's things like speculation that the Lexington is haunted. Uh, that's the one, I guess, in Corpus Christi. And the Hornet is also haunted. So if you're into that stuff, this is that time of year to go out and check out those places. So it's not a fear of flying, but it's a fear of those things that have flown into those airports. Things that go bump in the night. Exactly. <laughs> well, folks, with that said, it's been wonderful talking to my co-hosts here, both Rick and Tom and uh, all the other co-hosts that put this together here at the Stuck Mike Avcast. Don't forget to go check out our next podcast or come out and visit us right there in the land. It'll be Tom, Michael McClellan, uh, Tom Frick, Michael McClellan, myself, and, uh, of course, Roy Brewer, who's 
who's been on the podcast and has been in uh, Sun and Fun Radio. Uh, Dave Schalbetter will be there. Uh, Michael Ladd will be there. Um, I think uh, there's going to be a, quite a few other people from Sun and Fun Radio that are going to be out there. That's going to be on the 14th uh, of uh, November. But also, what we're going to do is gonna have a couple of interviews. We're going to have them here uh, on Stuck Mike Avcast, bringing them to you. And also, you can watch it live on Facebook. You can go to Sun and Fun Radio. That's where we're going to stream all this live. And, of course, go to our uh, Facebook page to check out the episodes. Well, folks, I really appreciate your listening tonight. Safe flying. We'll talk to you next episode. And don't forget to look up all those websites and all those links by coming here to StuckMikeAvcast.com. Talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.